From Troy Public Radio, Troy University, and the Wiregrass Archives in Dothan, Alabama, this is It Came From the Archives. I'm Greg Phillips. Each episode, we delve into the archives to bring you a topic, introduce you to someone new, or tell you a story about the Wiregrass region and the surrounding area. Our guide is Marty Olaf, director of the Wiregrass Archives at Troy University. Today, we're exploring the life of Charles Henderson, businessman, civic booster, mayor of Troy, and eventually the governor of Alabama. You may not be familiar with the name Charles Henderson simply because he was born more than 160 years ago. But if you've been to a high school football game in Troy, Alabama, you may have heard the fight song from the school named in his honor. And he had a big influence in the history of Troy University, as you'll hear from our guide to the archives, historian Dr. Marty Olaf. My real interest in Charles Henderson came because I had edited a collection of essays about the Alabama home front in World War I. The most interesting thing about Henderson's administration and World War I was that the legislature, the 1901 Constitution, stopped the biennial legislative sessions and made them quadrennial every four years. So that began in 1903, 1907, 1911, 1915, and 1919. Our legislature did not meet during World War I. And so Henderson had to negotiate everything going on in the state by himself. And part of that was he considered himself to be a business governor and that the state had been spending extravagantly, so he simply refused to pay for a, uh, a special session of the legislature, even though one was desperately needed. It feels like there's a joke in there somewhere about the legislature not accomplishing anything, but I'll leave that to the listeners. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's, uh, sometimes it's better to let people think those things up on their own, <laughs> even if we point them in exactly the right direction. What Henderson did during his gubernatorial time, his tenure as governor, that affected Troy University from that point forward, from that point till now, was he refused to release money to build a campus out in the northwest section of Troy. Let's back up a little bit and talk about Henderson himself. He was born in 1860. He was born in what is now Henderson in Pike County, south of here, about 12 miles. He moved to Troy with his family. His father was was in the Civil War. He moved to Troy with his family in 1869. And then in 1875, when he was 15 years old, he went to Howard College over in West Alabama, which subsequently moved to Birmingham to become Samford University. He was there for two years. His father died very quickly, very suddenly, and very early in 1877. So he cut his studies short, came back home to work in the family mercantile store. Now, the Henderson family had made a bunch of money. They were well-to-do and were one of the merchant families of uh, Troy, Alabama. Uh, Troy is a little like an Italian city-state in this era, in the late 19th century, there were all of these families that 
vied for power, that vied for commercial advantage, but they also partnered together and they created business after business after business. It is truly remarkable just how many businesses and, and pretty substantial businesses were created by these guys. Anyway, so he was, Henderson himself, as well as his family, were merchants. They had a big jobbing warehouse, uh, uh, wholesale business. He was one, by 1890, was one of two cotton buyers. He and the other cotton buyer had squeezed all of the little cotton buyers out. That meant that he went out into the fields and decided what cotton he was going to buy and how much he was going to pay for it. And, and, and so he controlled the cotton market in, uh, in Troy along with the other family, the Bashinsky family. He was a railroad investor along with competitive families. All of them, all of them got a piece of that of the Alabama Midland coming through. At one point, he planted 5,000 peach trees to try to diversify crops. He was an experimental farmer, you might say. He was a founder of the Troy Iron Works. He was a founder of Troy's Standard Chemical and Oil Company, which was, and by oil, we, we would think now, oh, petroleum exploration. Right, that's what I was thinking. No, 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 cotton oil, cottonseed oil. It was an oil press. Wow, what was that used for? Oh, it was used for everything. Uh, shortening is cottonseed oil. Wow. And uh, Jay Leno used to make a joke, if, if you remember who Jay Leno was. Jay Leno used to make a joke about silly laws. And one of the silly laws was a Wisconsin law that said you could not dye shortening. Well, what color are you going to dye shortening? You gotta, I mean, it's white. What are you going to do? You're going to dye like dye it purple? Why would that be illegal? No. They dyed it yellow, and then they passed it off as pure butter when uh. it was a cheaper product. So it was an adulterated food. Anyway. Would it be fair to say that at this point, even though he's from this small, uh, what we would consider a small area now, he's well known throughout the state at this point, is he not? We're running all these businesses and... It's a little hard to say if he was well-known throughout the state because Troy was far enough away from everything. I'd say where people knew about Troy, they knew about Henderson. They also knew about all these other families, too. But regionally, everybody in Troy was well-known. All, all of these big merchant families, the, the people were well-known. And that's what he parlayed in 1914 into his election as governor. But he also parlayed some other things. But but first, let me say, probably the most important business that he founded was Troy Bank and Trust. He was their founding president in 1906, and he served as president until he died in 1937. And one of the reasons that Charles Henderson's legacy lives on, and everything is named for Charles Henderson, is because of his will. He made a ton of money. He was an exceptionally wealthy man, particularly for this area, and particularly for the time. And during the Depression, he had no children. During the Depression, he saw some of the institutional failures that made people suffer. And he wanted to help correct those. So he had set up his will to provide for his wife for 20 years, a very good income for her for 20 years, 
and assuming she would pass away before that, and she certainly did. Uh, he had one other person that he set, set up with a, a moderate income. But then the rest of his fortune went to a trust at Troy Bank and Trust. It was administered out of there, and that after the first 20 years, so beginning in 1957, his money would go to build schools and to improve schools. And so he is, his money is directly responsible for Charles Henderson High School, for Charles Henderson Middle School, and for two or three of the schools that have consolidated since that were out in the county. Then after 20 more years, so 1977, his money went to providing health, health provisions for children who were not well off. And what he was thinking when he, when he put this um, codicil in his will in, in the, the mid-1930s, he was thinking of polio. Well, what happened in the 1950s after he was dead? The oh, vaccine. Yep. So the, uh, the Salk and Sabin vaccines. And so polio was pretty much eradicated by 1977. So his will went to general health, mental health for uh, young children. And so you, you have that in the, um, the, the Henderson Center. And then there are a couple of other things that his money went for. That's that's more so than his presence as the governor or or anything like that. Nevertheless, Bill Rice, in his 2006 history of Troy, Alabama, called, Bill's got a great way with titles, Troy, 1838 to 2005. There, there's no there's no disguising that. There's no uh, there's no hidden messages, no uh, just straight to the point. You know exactly what he's going to be talking about. He calls Charles Henderson the most influential man in state history from Troy, Alabama. He's influential in the state, he's influential uh, in Troy. And and not because he's necessarily the most famous, but he had his fingers in like you were indicating so many pies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he even was responsible for the Pea River Power Company and for the very first telephone exchange in Troy. Now, people now with, their, with, with cell phones don't know about the beginnings of telephones. They were not ubiquitous. Every little town had some business person who created the, a subscription telephone service, and they'd run a line out to your house, and if you wanted to call anybody, you had to go through a switchboard. If you've ever seen, if you've ever seen uh, the Andy Griffith show, you've seen them call up and, and click on the phone and, right. and talk to the operator and get connected, and, and then there were party lines and all. This is stuff I grew up with. Rotary dial telephones, and uh, you rented your telephone. Anyway, he he started the uh, the first telephone exchange in Troy, which was really cutting edge technology at that at that period of time. But he was also a public servant and a politician. He was the youngest mayor that Troy had had until that time. In 1886, at the age of 26, he was elected mayor. It was a generational shift. A bunch of his friends who had formed fire companies, who were getting involved in business as young men, they'd all either, uh, the few of them that had gone to college, were finished with college, they replaced the previous generation 
of leaders in town. They replaced their fathers, basically, kind of all in one fell swoop. It changed the town quite a bit. Subsequently, in the early 1900s, he became the president, as it was called, of the Alabama Railroad Commission, extraordinarily important office. The Railroad Commission ultimately became the Public Services Commission. That's really why he could run for governor, is his seat sitting on the, the Railroad Commission. And he was on from 1901 to 1906, beginning with the Comer administration as governor in 1907, B.B. Comer's administration. There began a, a state war with the railroads that ended up in court and was not resolved until 1914 in which the state was trying to regulate railroad predatory practices and, and uh, commercial rates that were differential, particularly differential in Georgia. That became a big problem for Comer himself. Then he was governor from 1915 to 1919. After he was governor, he um, was placed on the state docks commission. And then in 1923, he became a member of the Board of Trustees of Alabama Polytechnic Institute, what we now call Auburn University. Wow. So he was, also, he was on the Board of Trustees of the State Normal School at Troy until 1899, and then he was also on the Board of Trustees at Auburn University. So talk about his finger being in a bunch of different pies. We're yes. talking about business, commerce, government, education, everything mm-hmm. that you could. He was diversifying... Uh, his, his well, and speaking of education, when Troy University came on the scene, I'm sorry, when the, the State Normal College at Troy was created in 1887, one of the things that was in the legislation, the enabling legislation, was that the city of Troy would create a school system attached to the college as a lab school. Charles Henderson became the first city school superintendent. Now, that worked out pretty well for him. <laughs> because he he got kind of close to one of the teachers in the city school system who had been uh, brought in from from Carolinas. Her name was Laura Montgomery, and and ultimately they married. A little bit of uh, interest there right off the bat, because apparently she only lasted a year in her role as the. Uh, I the think that uh, after that after that first year, she was Mrs. Charles Henderson, and <laughs> felt like maybe her her job at the school and her job supporting her husband at home might be in conflict with each other. Now, it's interesting because he was one of the, the people that pushed for, for the, the state normal school at Troy. Is this correct? Yes and no. He was not as influential as many of the other people that had formed a committee to get a normal school. What was going on in Alabama was that the state legislature had commissioned four or three schools in Alabama to be state-supported white teachers' colleges called normal schools. There was one in, uh, became the University of North Alabama just outside of Florence, Jacksonville State in Northeast Alabama, and then in Southwest Alabama, what has now become the University of West Alabama, I believe it was called Livingston State Teachers College, but Southeast Alabama did not have one of these. And Troy, people in Troy felt like, you know, they were a center of commerce, they were an important town, and so they wanted to be the center of uh, normal school education in Southeast Alabama. And I think they had a pretty good claim to it. 
uh, quite frankly. Though, though I live in Dothan, at that at that point in time, Dothan had like maybe 300 people in it. It was it was just a big village, and it was not incorporated until 1885. Troy was a rock and roll city at that point. Henderson was was young enough. He was so young that he couldn't belly his way in uh, to these committees because they'd been going for a couple of years. But what he was on was the committee for lobbying. And then when a couple of the other committee members went in February of 1887 to lobby the legislature to go ahead and pass the bill that um, Re- Representative McLeod from Troy had, uh, had put into the hopper, then they got real close. And then Henderson came in the next day and worked the senators and the uh, representatives again. And apparently, altogether, they got this bill passed. It was a pretty lopsided vote in favor of placing this at Troy. And that was a little bit unusual in the history of the state of Alabama. The, there was always a fight for where these, these schools were going to go, not just the normal schools, but every school. And there was always a fight. After, after a while, another town would want the school that existed in, in this other town. I mean, it happened, to, it, it happened to Auburn. It happened to Troy. You know, there, there was discussion about moving the University of Alabama at one point. So all these schools get fought over. And one of the things that people will find if they if they find your blog post about this is uh, there's great photos. There's a photo of the original normal school academic building that was located downtown. And there's also uh, an interesting photo of the original faculty of the normal. And um, I, I couldn't help but notice that uh, this almost looks like an Old West street gang. Was everyone <laughs> in the 1880s just stern and serious? I think that's a an artifact of... Um how people were enculturated to take photographs. There's a discussion among photography people that that shutter speeds were so slow that you had to, to hold a facial expression. Well, certainly that did not pertain after the 1860s when shutter speeds right. were, were a lot faster. And they could be faster because the medium of capturing the light, the, the photographic plates were much more sensitive to light after the Civil War. And so they didn't have to have long exposures. But I think by that time, people had been enculturated. We're, we're enculturated now to smile. <laughs> true, true. And they were enculturated not to smile. But yeah, they all looked like, they, they all had the same mustache, <laughs> except the women. They, they all had the same hairstyle. They all dressed in, in the same kind of, you know, exactly like we do now. We have a uniform, they have a uniform. Absolutely. The, if, if, if you've not been able to see the photo yet, just picture the movie Tombstone, yep. but set at a, at a normal school. Without hats. <laughs> without hats, yeah. right. Yeah. And without guns. <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> so interestingly enough, even though he was in support of the normal school going downtown, let's fast forward a little bit to his opposition to giving the normal school the money that it needed to expand. What was the, what was the source of this, uh, this opposition in your mind? The opposition that you're talking about specifically is his gubernatorial opposition. But that sprang from his long-term opposition to moving the campus from downtown. This idea about moving the campus out of downtown 
uh, has a long history. The property that the, that the college had downtown was bound. There was no room to expand. Over and over, there were these discussions about moving from downtown, and the university bought a dairy farm at one point, and I think that was up on the uh, Orion Road and might have been the location of where they were trying to move to later on. And he had, a, he had always opposed moving out of downtown. He also opposed the college really expanding in downtown. So I, I think that had more to do with the lack of available property that would have been appropriate to, for the college to absorb. At one point, they were able to absorb three houses that were adjacent to their relatively small property, but they were bound on one side by a railroad. They were bound on two sides by, by warehouses. And so I'm sure Henderson was saying, no, we don't want him encroaching on... Uh, or taking over warehouse space that's right next to the railroad. This uh, uh, infrastructure is all bound together. We can't have a, a warehouse a mile away from the railroad. It's got to be right there. And the college is just out of luck. What was his opposition to? It's understandable why he was op, he was opposed to it expanding where it was. But what was the? Why was he married to the concept of it being downtown? I, I think that's just sheer civic boosterism. He may have had some kind of, this sounds nefarious and I don't mean it to, he may have had some kind of monetary interest that he felt like would be threatened if the, if the college moved. He probably just had a boosterous spirit. And, and I think it goes back a little bit to some tension between the college people, the people who were involved in the institution wanting to expand the institution and what they thought it could be, and his idea that the institution was really to serve the people of Troy and the Pike County area and maybe a little bit further out. And so the market was extremely limited to the number of people that they could expect to ever come to the campus. And so he didn't want this big campus with no students at it. Gotcha. And, and that eventually, of course, uh, plays itself out when he becomes governor. And the there are people locally who are wanting the normal school to expand and also to move to a, to a better location. He's still opposed to this. And when he becomes governor, he just flat out refuses to release the funds that would be necessary to make this happen. The state legislature had appropriated funds in 1911 for Troy Normal to move to the Orion Road property. They couldn't, they didn't have the money to, uh, to give. And then when he became governor in 1915, he just cut it off. He said, don't even bother with it. We're, I'm just not going to give you that money. And so that forced the, the college to go ahead and build a dorm and, and expand its housing opportunities. The dorm was named for, uh, for Laura Montgomery. It was Montgomery, uh, uh, Laura, Laura Henderson dorm, hall, I think. And, but it was landlocked, and it was not going to be able to expand anymore. I mean, you, you would think, nowadays we say, oh, just grow vertically. Then you couldn't grow vertically. Uh, just impossible. You couldn't, you, you couldn't build very high up unless you were actually building steel frame buildings, which were incredibly expensive. So they just weren't going to do that. 
What eventually happened, though, was that after Henderson's term ended in 1919, negotiations began, it became blatantly obvious that the old style, Henderson had gone from being, being the new kid on the block to being the old curmudgeon with old style thoughts. And the new style thoughts was, we got to get some elbow room. We actually can serve a bigger population than what these, these old coots think we're going to serve. And so the school uh, purchased property where it is now in southeast Troy, and by 1930 was able to move on to this new campus. 275 acres, which, which had to blow Charles Henderson's mind from what he was anticipating uh, even years earlier with a 79-acre parcel that, that had been uh, plotted out. I would have loved to have heard his thoughts on this. I'm sure they included things at very loud volume. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's so interesting. You have a great note here at the end. It's amazing how things work out because on, on the surface, you could say, oh, well, this was a bad thing because he cut off this funding. But in the long run, for those of us who have come up through Troy University, I, I'm a graduate of Troy University, we wouldn't be where we are had he not cut off that funding, correct? We very well could have been on Orion Road and a much smaller campus than we have today. Uh, yeah, and a much less convenient campus, too, considering the routing of Highway 231, which took place in 1926. It, it's, a, it's amazing how things work out, even when they seem like they're not going to work out. Right. It certainly is. With that, we've reached the end of this episode, but definitely not the end of the Wiregrass Archives. There is still so much to discover and so many stories to be told on this podcast. You can find more information on your own at troy.edu slash wiregrassarchives. If you like this podcast, be sure to tell a friend. And we'd love it if you left a review in the App Store. It helps other people find this show. I'm Greg Phillips, joined as always by Marty Olaf, director of the Wiregrass Archives in Dothan, Alabama. This episode was recorded in the studios of Troy Public Radio and was produced by Austin Toy with help from Kyle Gassett. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll be back again soon to tell you another story, and you'll know it came from the archives. Mm-hmm.